The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. You know, I might have mentioned this on several previous episodes of Go Green Radio, but I am a huge fan of National Geographic. I love their magazine. I love their channel. I love everything they're doing. And today, we're going to be talking about a brand new series that the National Geographic Channel and General Electric have uh, partnered together with executive producers Ron Howard and Brian Grazer to come up with a really cool new series called Breakthrough. And it's about scientific explorers from leading universities and institutions and how their cutting-edge innovations and advancements will change our lives in the immediate future and beyond. And this weekend... Uh, December 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central on the National Geographic Channel. It'll be the first time that a film that's part of this breakthrough series that was um, directed by Angela Bassett will premiere. And you can see that. And the, the title of this particular episode is called Water Apocalypse. And I'm excited today because we have one of the people who is featured in that film here today on Go Green Radio to talk with us. Um, and, and we're going to be talking about a wide breadth of water issues that are covered by the film that she is a part of as well. And I'm excited to have her on. Sandra Postel is our guest today. She directs the Independent Global Water Policy Project, and she is widely known through her lectures, her writing, and consulting on global water issues. And I'm so thrilled to have you on Go Green Radio. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you so much, Jill. I'm just delighted to be here. Well, as I mentioned this weekend, you'll be featured in the premiere of a film that Angela Bassett directed for the National Geographic Channel called Water Apocalypse. I'd love for you to give us a little overview of what the film is about. Well, most of us know, you know, from reading the news and hearing the news that we have some serious water problems from the drought in California and so much of the West to, you know, lack of safe drinking water around the world, um, depletion of groundwater. So there's many, many challenges. And what, what water apocalypse is really about is, yes, showcasing what the problems are, but really about how innovative technologies and creative solutions can really help us solve these problems. The, you know, the problems are so big they can sometimes seem overwhelming, but I think the good news part and the inspiring part of water apocalypse is that, you know, we can do something about this. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, some of the most creative minds are starting to pay attention to these problems and developing innovative technologies and ways we can you know, get smarter about how we use water, and, and, and that's very inspiring. So I think, you know, listeners on, on the show are going to really enjoy 
um, the breakthrough episode on, on Sunday night. Well, I know I really enjoyed it. I got a chance to preview the film this week. And one of the most shocking segments for me, though, was seeing people who live in California who literally have no running water in their homes because their wells have run dry and there's nothing that they can do about it. Um, the film even showed a mother and a son who had to walk a long way to get to public showers. And it was just so hard to believe that this is happening in America. Sandra, my question for you is, is it simply a lack of rainfall that has caused this problem, or are there other contributing factors as well? Well, there are other contributing factors. Certainly in this case, the severe drought in California is is a major cause of this. Um, This drought in California that's been going on for nearly five years now is, is the worst, according to most scientists that have studied it, potentially the worst in 1,200 years. So this is a very significant drought episode for California. And, of course, in the last half century, California has grown substantially. Um, you know, massive areas of, of cropland where so much of the country now gets its fruits and vegetables, uh, very high population growth. You know, California was the epitome of the American dream. Loads of people wanted to move there. So the big cities have grown. So the demands on water, even apart from the drought, the demands on that limited, finite freshwater supply have increased dramatically over the last half century. You know, California's water system is like a big plumbing system. Um, they take water from the north and bring it to the Central Valley farmers. They bring the water all the way down to Los Angeles, hundreds of miles through canals. So water is kind of turned on and off like a tap. And you know, now that the drought has hit, there's just not as much water to go around. Uh, and so one thing that, that farmers and communities have been doing as the surface reservoirs shrink and the rivers have dried up and the snowpack is almost non-existent is to go underground, you know, to pump groundwater from beneath the earth up to the surface for use, to grow crops, to get drinking water. And so that's been depleting the groundwater. So... You know, this drought has really impacted everything. And so that segment that you're referring to is about wells running dry and how, you know, as we, as we go deeper and deeper into the earth to get our water, um, eventually those wells go dry. And it's very expensive, you know, to deepen a well, to drill a new well. And so the, the piece that you're referring to in, in the show also has an equity component to it. You know, these are poor people in a poor part of California um, that, that are lacking now, you know, the ability to have safe drinking water in their homes, something we usually only associate with poor people in poor countries. So it is a pretty shocking, uh, pretty shocking thing. It really was. Um, you know, it, it's just something that I live in California, and yet, you know, that is so extreme, and and I didn't even know about it. I mean, we're seeing so many stories about the drought, but that's a, a piece of the story that we really haven't seen covered much, and it's it's really too bad because I think it does draw attention to the fact that you know this is not just about not being able to water your lawn or wash your car. This is much more serious than that. One of the things That's that the right. film it also it also points out how we take water for granted. Those of yes. us who you know have the luxury of turning on the tap and there's water, we don't even think about it most of the time. And mm-hmm. for these people, it's it's been an extreme hardship to not have that luxury of turning on the tap and, and just having the water they need for their daily life. 
Absolutely. And, you know, the film also showed a new way of reclaiming salty water under the ground in California's Central Valley. And of course, you know, we've talked about this on Go Green Radio a lot. You know, the Central Valley of California is not just important to Californians. That is where a huge percentage, well over half of the nation's produce comes from. And so, you know, when the Central Valley is dry, it's a problem for everyone. And there was a new technology that was shown in the film that uses solar power to desalinate the water that's just under the surface. And one of the gentlemen who explained the system had a very interesting quote, and I want to get your thoughts on this. He said, we can't just conserve our way to economic growth. We have to actually find new sources of water. And I'd love to know what your thoughts are on that, Sandra. Yeah, I, I feel a couple things about that. Um, one is I've, ne- I've not been a big fan of conventional desalination. Um, and the reason is that by conventional desalination, I mean taking ocean water and running it through, you know, a, usually a membrane system and, and creating, salt, uh, to, to creating fresh water by, by leaving the salts behind. And the reason I've not been a big fan of that is because it's very, very energy intensive. It takes a lot of energy to move that water through the membrane, the salt water through the membrane, separate the salts out, and then create that fresh water supply. And most of the time, efforts to conserve water in the urban environment would be much cheaper, much less environmentally damaging than that desalination. You know, to me, it's not an elegant solution to burn more fossil fuels which is contributing to global warming and climate change, to create fresh water. It's, it's mm-hmm. more elegant to look at how we can manage to use the water we already have more efficiently and more effectively. And most of the time, those solutions are there, but we're turning to that, you know, kind of silver, silver bullet technology of desalination. But what I like about the technology that's showcased in, in, in Breakthrough is that it's very different from that conventional desalination. For one, it's driven by the sun. It's solar-powered. And two, it's not taking, you know, marine water, ocean water as the supply. It's taking water that's already been used to grow crops, so irrigation water in the Central Valley that has become very salty and very toxic. They're loaded with chemicals from running through that farmland and picking up from the soil a lot of salts and contaminants. And so it's dirty water when it comes out, you know, off the field and would otherwise flow into you know, a river, in this case the San Joaquin River in California, and pollute the river. Well, this technology run by the sun is taking that really toxic, nasty drainage water and cleaning it up. It's taking the salts out, it's taking the contaminants out, and it's making that water available for reuse to grow crops again, to maybe even supply drinking water to a nearby town right there in the Central Valley. So Mm -hmm. it's taking what would be a problem, the dirty drainage water from agriculture, and feeding it and reusing it and turning it into a good supply. So it's a kind of desalination that I think has a lot of potential. It's small scale, it's, it's mobile, it's modular, so you could expand it out, you can shrink it down. So it has a lot of potential. So it's, again, it's one of those exciting. examples of creative thinking and, and an innovative solution. Mm-hmm. No, it's really exciting. And I love the way the film shows each step of it. It really explains it so that even a layman can understand how it works. So, again, um, you know, I really encourage our listeners to check out 
this particular film in the Breakthrough series uh, this this weekend on the National Geographic Channel. You know, I think it's hard sometimes for people to understand how we could be in a freshwater crisis when we live on a big blue planet that's just teeming with water. Help us understand why freshwater is such a finite resource. Well, you know, it's a really good question. You know, ever since we got those beautiful images of our Earth, our home, um, from space when the astronauts um, went up in 1968 and sent back those amazing photographs of this beautiful blue Earth, how could we have a water problem? But, you know, if we think about water as, you know, as a, as a planetary system and look at how the water divides up, we start to understand why. You know, and it's because, you know, 97.5% of all the water on Earth is salt water, and so we can't drink that. We can't grow crops with that. Only 2.5% is fresh water, and two-thirds of that fresh water is locked up in glaciers and ice caps. So when you just do the quick math, you know, less than 1% of all of this water on Earth is fresh and accessible to us to use. And even some of that's hard to get. You know, much, much of that water is in the Amazon basin where you have you know, a lot of water, but not very many people. So it's not even distributed very, um, you know, well for us in a way around around the earth. We want to grow crops where it's sunny. Well, we don't have a lot of water where it's sunny. So it's challenging to find the fresh water that we need. And a word that you said is very important, and that's finite. You know, we have a tendency to think, well, water just comes down as rain from the sky. It's it's endless. You know, it's it's inexhaustible. But in any given watershed, any given river basin, um, there's only so much available. You know, the, the natural water cycle only makes so much available. It's finite, both globally and locally. So how we use that water is really is really key and, and ensuring that we don't use more than nature provides. And in many places, we already are using more than, than nature provides. And that's when we get issues like we talked about a few minutes ago, depleting groundwater and that kind of thing. Right. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in the next segment. And I'm really excited to have you help us understand the issue of aquifers and groundwater. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have much, much more with Sandra Postel. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. 
Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking about a brand new film that'll be premiering this weekend on National Geographic Channel. Uh, It's called Water Apocalypse. It was directed by Angela Bassett, and it'll air on December 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. And one of the scientists that's um, featured in the film, Sandra Postel, is with us today, and we're talking about a variety of water issues and uh, some of the things that are covered in the film. And I'm so excited to have her on. You know, Sandra, for millions of Californians and other folks in the Plain states who have been living in drought, but it's particularly uh, difficult in California. Uh, we have become much more aware of the amount of water that we use in our residence because, at least in California, we will pay hefty fines if we do not meet water restriction mandates. But a lot of us don't know how much water we consume in things like the clothes we wear or the food choices that we make. There's sort of these hidden gallons that are consumed in our lives. And I'd like for you to talk to us about this issue and, and help us understand if we want to lower our water footprint, where can we go for information that will help us do that? Yeah, this is a great question, and it's it's where I think we as individuals can really engage on, on water and, and feel like we can do something to be part of the solution. You know, we tend to think of our water use as being the water that we use at home, you know, the water that... Uh, we turn on the tap and use to uh, brush our teeth, take a shower, wash the dishes, do our laundry, irrigate our, our plants and, and lawns, in many cases, outside of our houses. And that is our home water use. And it's very important because that's the water that comes from our watershed, wherever we live. But our total water footprint is much, much bigger than that. Um, it includes the water that is needed to make all of the food that goes into our diets, um, to produce the energy that we use to heat our homes for electricity. It includes water that is used to make all the material things that we buy and that we use every day. So pretty much everything we eat, wear, buy, use takes water to make, and sometimes a lot of water. If you're an average American, your total footprint on an average day is 2,000 gallons of water a day. Maybe 5 or 10% of that is the water you're using at home. So half of it, about 1,000 gallons or so, can be more than that, is your diet. And it takes a lot of water to grow the crops that we eat and and especially to make 
um, products like meat in the way conventional meat is made. You're irrigating the corn that's then fed to the cows in the feedlot. Um, and it can, it can create a hamburger, for example, that might take 600 or more gallons of water to make. Well, 600 gallons for one hamburger is about the amount of water you would use at home in a whole week. So it's a lot of water. A cotton shirt. Many of us are doing some holiday shopping. You know, we don't think about it. We walk into a store and we think, oh, that looks great. We don't think about the water. And again, it's not to lay a guilt trip on anybody, but it's just to be aware um, that everything we're using and buying takes water. The average cotton shirt, 700 gallons, because it takes a lot of water to grow that cotton out in the field. So just that awareness is, is really important. About 13 gallons of water to... Um, to make one uh, gallon of fuel when you when you put uh, gasoline in your car, 13 gallons per gallon of fuel. So just that awareness, you know, I think can help us to be a little bit more conscious of our of our choices and um, and make some different choices. Uh, and so I think that's a you know a very positive a very positive thing. We created uh, at National Geographic um, a water footprint calculator about five years ago, and it's been a very popular tool on our website. It was one of the early ones that really took a comprehensive look at your footprint. You know, there are many online that will walk you through your water use at home. But as I pointed out, that's a very small share of your total footprint. So this mm-hmm. walks you through your diet and your, your kind of uh, shopping habits and your energy uh, use at home and kind of gives you a picture of your personal water footprint. It's by no means perfect because we can only, you know, be as good as the data are good, but um, it gives you a feeling for it and gives you your number and you can see where you're high, where you're low, and gives you some tips on ways you might be able to shrink that footprint. Um, Not that, you know, we're going to be prescriptive about it or anything like that. I think diet in particular is a very personal uh, matter, but giving you options and choices and things to think about is really the goal. And and if everyone were to do even a simple thing to shrink their water footprint, well, we've, we've, you know, we've sort of pulled ourselves back a little bit from these stresses on water systems and, and freed up some water for others or for nature. Absolutely. You know, in 2010, you were referencing, um, you know, a, a water pr- footprint tool that you all created. You were appointed in 2010 the Freshwater Fellow of the National Geographic Society, and you serve as the Society's lead water expert. And part of the program that this water footprint tool um, is married to is called Change the Course, and it's a great website. It's a great tool. Um, and it's a national freshwater conservation and restoration campaign that's been pioneered by National Geographic and its partners. And it's being piloted in the Colorado River Basin. And I'd love for you to talk to us about Change the Course, what the objectives are, and how you'll know when the campaign either is succeeding or has succeeded. What are the ways that you're measuring success? Change the Course is, as you say, a a national freshwater conservation and restoration uh, initiative. And it was spearheaded, it's been spearheaded by National Geographic, the Bonneville Environmental Foundation, and participant media. And the basic idea is to bring together uh, the public and corporations and conservation organizations to raise awareness and action around freshwater conservation 
and to restore water to depleted rivers and wetlands. It's really addressing that big challenge that we face in the world today, which is how are we going to meet all of our needs, you know, seven-plus billion people around the world, and still have a healthy environment around us, still have healthy rivers and wetlands. And if we're going to do that, we have to do two things, shrink that water footprint of ours and restore water to those depleted rivers and wetlands. You know, if you look around the world today, many rivers no longer reach the sea. Many small tributaries to big rivers are drying up for extended periods of time. So to have a healthy environment, we need to not only conserve, but figure out how to get water back into the natural environment. So that's what Change the Course is really designed to do. And it's really about building a movement of water stewardship that can involve everyone and needs to involve everyone, from the public, from businesses, and then, of course, conservation groups who help work on the restoration piece. So we're off to a great start with Change the Course. We launched it in February 2013, and the basic way it works is that anyone who wants to join us can make a voluntary pledge to conserve, you know, do that water footprint calculator and look at your footprint, figure out some way you can imagine feeling good about conserving water in your daily life. You make a pledge. You go to um, our website, changethecourse.us. You can text RIVER to 77177, make a pledge, and we promise that for every pledge, we will return 1,000 gallons of water to a depleted river or wetland. And what makes that possible are our corporate sponsors who also want to balance their water footprint by returning some water to nature. And so they basically provide funding for us to partner with local conservation groups who are on the ground doing the work of restoration. And so it's that partnership, public, business, and, and conservation community that makes this whole thing work. And we're off to a great start. We've been piloting this idea in the iconic Colorado River Basin, headwaters in the Colorado Rockies, all the way down to the Delta in Mexico. And we, at this point, have 140, about 140,000 people in our pledge community, about two dozen corporate sponsors that have, that have partnered with us on this and have basically implemented about 15 different projects led by local conservation organizations that altogether has returned more than 4 billion gallons of water to depleted ecosystems in the Colorado River Basin. Now, that sounds like a lot of water, 4 billion gallons, but it's really a drop in the bucket, literally, of of what's Mm -hmm. needed. Uh, But it's a great start, and it's made a difference in those rivers and wetlands where we've worked. Um, So with this successful pilot, we're now getting ready to move Change the Course to other river basins, to other geographies around the country, to California, hopefully into Texas, hopefully into the southeast and other parts of the eastern uh, regions of the country, the Midwest. Every region has water issues, and water stewardship is needed everywhere, and engagement by the public and business is needed everywhere. So we're trying to build this movement, um, and as I say, we're off to a really great start, and really hope many of your listeners will, will want to join with us. 
Well, I did. I took the pledge this week. I am one of your pledge community. And I really do think it's very exciting. Yeah, I I think that it's a wonderful way that you've structured this so that, you know, for everyday Americans, you can take the pledge. You can uh, look at different ways that you can reduce your water footprint. And then the corporate sponsors take those pledges and turn it into action um, with their funding. And I think that's a brilliant model. I love it. Really quickly, you know, we have a couple of minutes till we need to take a commercial break, but help us understand this concept of water leases and how that's part of what you're doing with Change the Course. Well, water leases is just one tool that can help get water back into depleted ecosystems. You know, particularly in the West, there's a very fixed allocation of water, and water has a property right to it in most cases. And so, People are not willing to really give up their water rights very easily at all. But often people don't need all of the water that they have a right to all of the time. And so if you can set up a mechanism where you can temporarily lease water from the holder of a water right, that can benefit the water right holder. Usually it's a farmer, usually it's an irrigator, um, because they're getting extra income. And yet it benefits the environment if you can take that water and put it back into a depleted river. So it's a way of increasing the value of water. You know, we're getting more out of it. Um, and so that's one tool that conservation groups um, have, have started to use to, um, you know, to, again, voluntarily get water back to the environment. Um, and it's, it's been helpful in a number of the rivers that, and, and systems that we've worked in. Um, in the Delta in Mexico, for example... Um, there's a, an organization called the Colorado River Delta Water Trust, which is um, accepting, you know, leases from irrigators in the Delta in Mexico who would prefer to lease their water than to irrigate their land in a particular um, year. And so that water can then be used to help recreate the habitats that once were in the Delta but, are, you know, are no longer there. So there's a very... Uh, and the and the and the show Sunday night will will go into this. There's a very you know exciting restoration effort going on in the Colorado River Delta to bring some of those habitats back and bring that life back. And that water leasing is an important component of that of that effort. Well, and that's a really that's a really great mechanism. And I'm sure that for farmers who are in a use it or lose it situation, it allows them to, you know, not lose their water rights, um, even if they don't need it all and still, you know, maintain their water rights for when they do need it. Um, but allows them to, you know, use some of that water for good stewardship. So it's a really great mechanism. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back with Sandra, um, we're going to talk about some other freshwater issues here in America. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. We're in the middle of this segment. If you've just tuned in, I'm going to catch you up. We're talking about freshwater issues, and it's based upon a brand new film that was directed by Angela Bassett that's going to be premiering this weekend on the National Geographic Channel. It's going to be airing for the first time on December 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. So I want you to tune in. It's called Water Apocalypse. And one of the featured um, speakers, guests, scientists who's in Angela Bassett's film, Water Apocalypse, Sandra Postel, is with us today on Go Green Radio. And we've been talking about the freshwater crisis that we are experiencing, not just in America, but around the world. And the film does a beautiful job of showing both the crisis that we are in, but some of the solutions as well, and some of the really innovative uh, thinking and policy and technology that's addressing the freshwater crisis throughout the world. And so I really want you to tune in. I, of course, I'm an unabashed fan of National Geographic and everything they do, so I can't even be objective. I I love what they do, and you're going to love this film. Now, um, one of the things I want to ask you, Sandra, is about infrastructure. We've covered infrastructure topics um, on Go Green Radio quite a bit, and we've talked about how the water infrastructure in America, in many cases, is quite old. And I'm wondering how much fresh water we're losing simply due to leaky pipes and shoddy infrastructure. What are your thoughts on the water infrastructure needs in America? Well, there is, you know, a very serious water infrastructure problem in, in this country. Um, yeah, as you point out, much of this infrastructure is very old. If you, if you think about old cities like, you know, Boston and New York that, that have been around forever and the, the pipes and the, 
you know, the whole water system that was put in place so long ago, a lot of it is in great disrepair. And, and so we can be losing a lot of, you know, clean water, water that we've collected and treated and pumped into the system. Before it ever reaches a billable customer, it may just leak away, you know, out of um, gaps in the piping, for example. And so that's water that, you know, that's, that's effectively wasted. Um, and so we, what we found is that, um, you know, one of the most cost-effective things that cities can do is go out with, you know, leak detection equipment, find those leaks, and repair them. You know, Boston is an example of, a, of an older city that, you know, decided back in the 80s that, you know, it was about to reach the limit of its developed supply. They were looking at a new diversion from a river in New England to supply Boston with more water. And the conservation community said, hey, wait a minute, let's look at what conservation might do rather than take water out of a river in New England. And so they did. And one of the most cost-effective things they found they could do was to fix those leaking pipes. And it saved a lot of water, and it allowed them, along with some other conservation measures at the time, to completely avoid the need to expand that supply. So it's an example of how we need to really pay attention and repair, you know, that that infrastructure. A really exciting thing that's happening in cities now is the move toward what we call green infrastructure, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we think about the urban environment. It's a lot of concrete. It's a lot of pavement. And when rainfall hits that that hard surface of, of concrete and pavement, it just runs rapidly off. And we've seen stories very recently about these heavy rainstorms that result in massive flooding in these urban areas. But that's partly because the water has nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. So what cities are, are realizing now is how about if we get really smart about capturing that rainwater and helping it to recharge groundwater below, helping it to sustain some beautiful green spaces in our urban areas. So it's a way of beautifying the city, making stormwater, which is often a problem, into you know a, a new supply of water, making it part of the solution, and, and having a nicer urban environment overall. So Philadelphia, Los Angeles, um, Baltimore, cities all around the country, Seattle, Portland, are looking at these green infrastructure um, approaches as a way of dealing with not only their supply, but their quality problems and making the cities more attractive at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know I've, I've done some work with my nonprofit organization that's an environmental education program called the Go Green Initiative, and we've been working in some cities on the East Coast. Philadelphia is one where, uh, because they have a combined stormwater and sewage system, when there's a lot of stormwater going into the storm drains, the water treatment plants can get overwhelmed, and that's when sewer and stormwater together can start to back up, and it's a disgusting mess. And so um, they're really working hard at, you know, looking at ways to manage their stormwater, especially because a lot of these communities are also going to be impacted by sea level rise, um, which will create more storm surge, which will just exacerbate the problem. So, um, yeah, it's very exciting. We could do a whole show on, (laughs) you know, what's going on there. And I, I love to hear about it. You know, because you understand, you know, every aspect of what's going on with our freshwater supply, besides overconsumption by individuals, what are some of your biggest concerns, Sandra, about our freshwater supply? I mean, what what contaminants and or industrial uses of freshwater keep you up at night? Hmm. 
Well, I do work a lot on the, you know, on the, the, the depletion side of water, but we have to also be concerned about the quality of water. Um, you know, we've made a lot of strides in this country since the really severe contamination that we had of our rivers and lakes back in the 1940s and 50s. You know, the famous story of the Cuyahoga River in Ohio outside of Cleveland catching fire, mm-hmm. you know, from the oil slicks and everything that were, that were in the river. We've come a long way since then, you know, thanks to the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act and, you know, Rachel Carson writing about uh, the importance of all these, of all these things. So we've, we've come a long way. But there's still concerns, and two of the big ones, I think, are the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus, particularly nitrogen, that's running off of our land, a lot of it from farmland, but also from our septic systems and and our fertilizers on our urban lawns, and making their way into creeks and rivers, and then reaching our coastal bays and, and ecosystems. So we get these dead zones of effectively low oxygen, where it's really hard for fish and aquatic life to survive. And a lot of that is from, we call them nutrients, but they're pollutants. You know, they're flowing off the land and they're running down into these estuarine environments and creating these sort of toxic algal blooms that sap oxygen, you know, from the water. We have hundreds of these dead zones around the world now. We We saw recently in Toledo, Ohio, you know, they had to, you know, curtail their drinking water because um, of a toxic bloom in Lake Erie. So right here at home, it's a big problem. And the other thing are contaminants. Um, we refer to them sometimes as, you know, personal uh, pharmaceuticals and personal care products, PPCPs. And these are, um, you know, sort of leaking into our water systems from our homes. You know, we flush things down the toilet, medicines and other things. We... You know, we excrete them from our bodies, and then they go through a wastewater treatment system, but they're not taken out. Our conventional treatment systems can't remove those kinds of contaminants. And so, you know, we've ended up with, you know, really sort of uh, worrying situations like intersex fish in our rivers that are um, absorbing estrogenic compounds in some way and messing with their, you know, with their internal systems. And... You know, if they're harming fish, we have to wonder, well, are they, are they harming us, too? And, and the science is still out on that. But, but those things are a concern. So figuring out how to keep those kinds of contaminants out of the environment and also, you know, developing treatment mechanisms to remove them when they are there, I think, are, are really important, both for the, the health of the aquatic life in our river systems, but also potentially, you know, for our own health as well. Absolutely. You know, I want to shift to talking about aquifers because, you know, some of our listeners are very savvy about what these are and uh, what the threat to the our aquifers um, are. But I, I read your blog post from back in July. It was entitled, With one-third of the largest aquifers highly stressed, it's time to explore and assess the planet's groundwater. And I'd like for you to spend a couple minutes talking to us about this and helping our listeners understand this issue. Well, groundwater is a, you know, it's a very important supply of water. Um, you can think of it in a way as, you know, sort of a reserve of water. We, you know, many of us, the farmers and cities, many of us depend on groundwater for our drinking water supply. It grows a lot of our crops. Um, this is water that is stored in aquifers underground. Aquifers are geologic formations that hold water. So, um, there are, you know, por- there's a porosity to those, um, ac- to those geologic formations that can hold water between the, between the, uh, the grains, say. 
Um, and so as we, as we drill wells, we can pump that water out. So the trick is to make sure that we don't pump more water out than nature is recharging through rainfall or other mechanisms. And the problem is over and over again around the world, we are taking more water out of our groundwater than is being replenished. And so the best estimates we have are that, you know, since about 1960, so over the last half century, we have roughly doubled that depletion of, of groundwater. We've also gotten a much better look at what's happening from a satellite mission that NASA began operating in 2002, which basically, you know, it's, it's a couple of satellites, a pair of satellites that, um, wrote, you know, roams around um, up above and is able to take gravity measurements. And using those measurements can tell um, changes in water storage on the Earth and below the Earth. And so it's given us a much more, given us a much more accurate look at what's happening to groundwater in the Central Valley of California, in Texas, in the Middle East, in China, in India. And what they found is that this depletion is, is happening more rapidly than we might have thought. And it gets worse, as I mentioned before, in times of drought, when that groundwater is kind of the last reserve. You know, that's where we go when the reservoirs are shrinking and the, and the rivers are drying up. We go, we go under the earth. So it's a crucial supply, and it's been kind of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind problem uh, because you literally can't see it, and most governments have chosen not to regulate it. And so Mm -hmm. pretty much in most places, you know, you can pump as much groundwater as you want from beneath your land. That's not true everywhere, but in California, that's been true. In Texas, that's been true. Where, Where we have some of the most severe problems, it's partly because we're not measuring it, we're not monitoring it, and we're not regulating it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very severe problem, and in a way, I think of it as, you know, taking water from future generations. You know, about ten percent of our food supply today is is produced by over pumping groundwater. Well, that's kind of like meeting our demands today by using tomorrow's water, and mm-hmm. so it raises questions about the water available to grow our food in the future. So I think groundwater is one of those water issues that we really need to pay attention to and, and really get on the stick about. California, you know, passed a, a new groundwater law in September 2014 that finally begins to tackle this. You know, it had been a blind spot in California for a long time, and as the depletion became more apparent and the drought uh, worsened, it became clear that we need to do something um, in California. And so the Absolutely. governor has, you know, has said that we need to start in these groundwater basins begin to move toward a more sustainable uh, use. Well, I mean, and it just makes perfect sense. I mean, we really need to know, because this is such a absolutely vital natural resource, we can't survive without it. We need to inventory it, we need to know how much is there, and then make sure that we are, you know, using it according to you know, what is a, a reasonable and sustainable rate. So, makes perfect sense. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Sandra Postel. So, don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? 
or 14%. Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Again today, in case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. We're talking to Sandra Postel, and she is going to be featured in a brand new film that's premiering this weekend on National Geographic Channel. It's airing December 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. It was directed by Angela Bassett, and it's called Water Apocalypse, and it's a really great film. It's um, really illuminating. Also very hopeful. So I want you guys to tune in. I got to see it this weekend. It's fantastic. Sandra, you are not alone in predicting that there will be future conflicts in the world over water. Many experts from a wide range of backgrounds. We've had uh, four-star Marine Corps generals on the show who've talked about this. Even the Pope talked about this in his most recent encyclical on the environment. Uh, They anticipate some form of water wars. Talk to us about what you believe the future holds for us when it comes to the impact of water scarcity. You know, I'm not as concerned about sort of conventional, you know, wars over water, the idea that one country will go to war with another country over water. I'm less worried about that than I am about the more sort of, you know, subtle ways in which water scarcity is destabilizing our societies and how that can lead to conflict, not only between countries but within countries. And, you know, if we look at so much of the instability around the world, Although water is not a primary cause, it is often a factor in it. You know, Syria right now went through, is going through a horrendous internal strife and it's spreading out, of course, throughout the region. There was a significant drought in Syria, you know, back in, I think it was 2010. And, you know, it forced a lot of people, farmers off the land, into the cities. They have no jobs. It's, you know, they, they become, you know, um, you know, basically disengaged from their from their lives as a result of having to leave the land. Well, just one example in Africa, we see you know water um, conflicts among local uh, local groups, and so 
it's a it's a very complicated set of, of issues. When when food prices go up because of water shortage and drought, that mm-hmm. is believed to also fuel instability socially. So it's that sort of intersection, that web of threats that I know our Pentagon is watching, our intelligence community is watching, of ecological decline, social instability, and economic instability. And and they all intersect. And I think it's that web of threats around water that we that we need to watch for absolutely absolutely well and even you know there were those who uh, you know just before arab spring russia had a huge drought and they announced that they would not be exporting wheat that year and a lot of people who watch the way that you know food uh moves around the world really got tense because they knew that some countries in the Middle East, to include Egypt, got almost 100% of their wheat from Russia. And as a result of what happened with that drought in Russia, the wheat prices went through the sky in Egypt and people who were already impoverished were now hungry and the, the conflict got to the boiling point and that is when we started to see Arab Spring break out. And so, you know, it, it it's amazing how all of this is so very interconnected. What do you think, Sandra, are some of the most important public policy changes that need to be made in order to protect our fresh water? Well, you know, we've we've really been very um, blessed to have this abundance of fresh water, and so you know, we haven't really developed policies and pricing of water, um, ways of valuing water that really have kept up with how scarce water has become. You know, we're still kind of operating as if water is super abundant, inexhaustible, and of course we know now that it's not. And so, you know, getting um, water to be valued more in an economic sense and a social sense, um, more than it currently is, I think, is, is a key policy. You know, I think regulating groundwater, as we talked about earlier, is very important. Pricing water, most, most people pay less for water than they do for their cable service at home. You know, pricing water so that we're more conscious of our use of water, I think, is really important. And there are ways of pricing water that you're, where you're not harming, you know, poorer people who are just meeting their basic needs with water. You can have a lifeline rate for basic needs of, of water, but when we start, you know, irrigating humongous green lawns and things like that, well, let's price that high enough that people... You know, really can have to think about using water in in those ways. Mm-hmm. So I think those are important mechanisms, and also beginning to get more flexible, particularly in the West, um, with this allocation system. Beginning to introduce the ability to buy and sell water a little bit more fluidly, so to speak. You know, we have to get a little more flexible about our use of water, um, and I think we can. Uh, markets, I think, are an important tool. They're not. Um, they should be a, a servant, not a master. I think we need, you know, water to remain part of the public trust because it is the basis of life. But we can introduce market mechanisms and, and allow, for example, farmers to, you know, to, to sell water to a city, to sell water to a conservation organization that wants to put it back in a river. Allow that flexibility to help us solve some of these problems um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and tools. So I think, I think that's another important uh, policy change I would make is to, is to allow for that flexibility. Mm-hmm. In the final moments that we have of the show, what are two or three actions that every American could take, you know, right away to make the greatest impact on our water supply? 
Well, I think the greatest impact comes from, one, getting informed, you know, getting informed about local water issues wherever you live to the global water issues that, that affect us all. So I think getting informed is, is always number one. Get, you know, get, get informed so that you can get engaged. And then I think, um, you know, develop for yourself, for ourselves, some different choices we can make um, that, that help us to be part of that solution, you know, shrinking our water footprint. Part of the reason our global human water footprint is so big is that we've been moving in that direction. Well, we can bring it back the other way by making more conscious choices about um, how we how we consume and what we consume. Absolutely. And, again, and I love the fact feeling- that your, your website, and I'm sorry we're almost out of time, but your website, changethecourse.us, has some wonderful resources for, for getting informed and some great tips for shrinking our individual water footprint. Sandra, I wish we had more time, but we don't, and I want to thank you so much for joining us on Go Green Radio. I want to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.